Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Monitor Monday. I'm Nancy Beckley, Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent, and today I'm sitting in for Chuck Buck. There's a new and disturbing denial, a situation that's caught the attention of the Brundage Group. We have a report today from Dr. Brent Hogard later in the broadcast. Monitor Monday legislative analyst Emily Evans returns with the latest news on the recovery audit contractors. Healthcare attorney David Glazer returns with another example of risky business. And my fellow colleague in Milwaukee, J. Paul Spencer, reports on new retrospective MAC audits of claim payments. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ron Hirsch, who's making his Monday round and who also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. Well, it finally happened. CMS released the outpatient proposed rule. And for hospital, it seems to be a mixed bag of news. First of all, it seems the confusion over the proper status determination of total knee replacements was enough to convince CMS not to make any more changes to joint replacement for 2019. So total hip replacement remains inpatient only, and neither hip nor total knee replacement will be allowed in surgery centers, at least for 2019. And speaking of total knee replacements, at the RAC Summit last week in Los Angeles, we once again heard from the medical director of one of the QIOs that said that inpatient admissions that are one day for total knee replacements, and those patients are admitted preoperatively, and the documentation supports that they were high risk, should not be denied. So once again, I'm happy to say that my recommendations have been validated. Now, only if we can get someone to figure out how to get the orthopedist to document everything we need. We also learned that the QIOs are on round five of the targeted probe and educate audits of short inpatient admissions, and there is no indication that any provider has been referred to the RACs. But don't let that get your guard down, because we still have to keep auditing every one of those short stays. Now, while lack of change for joint replacement is good news for hospitals, there is some bad news. You've probably heard a lot about site-neutral payments being a goal of CMS. What that means is they feel that payment for many services should not vary if provided in the hospital, a hospital and clinic, or a private practice physician's office. For background, if a physician is seen in a doctor's office who is in private practice, there's one charge and one bill. If the hospital buys that physician's practice, the patient will get a bill for the physician's visit and another bill for the use of the facility. Patients don't like this since they now have a higher out-of-pocket cost. Now, a couple years ago, CMS did cut the facility payment on some visits, but now they're making deeper and broader cuts. CMS is also proposing to allow cardiac catheterizations at surgery centers. It appears they're taking baby steps here by allowing coronary angiograms, but not interventions, so no angioplasties or stenting yet. 
Now, when I first reviewed the rule, I glossed over one area that actually may be quite significant. CMS says they're going to review the safety, effectiveness, and beneficiary experience for the 38 procedures that were added to the ambulatory surgery center list in the last three years. I didn't make much of this, but one media outlet reported that this may be due to reports of poor outcomes for some Medicare beneficiaries who, who had these surgeries in a surgery center. Finally, CMS is also putting a lot of effort into addressing the opioid epidemic, and in this rule, they're proposing to adjust some of the payments for non-opioid methods of pain management provided in the outpatient setting to be sure that the cost of the procedures does not deter providers and hospitals from offering them. That's a brief overview. Back to you, Nance. Alrighty, thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday, and Dr. Hirsch, you now have the Monitor Monday listener survey. I do, and since we never talk about observation, I thought I'd ask about it. So the question is, how does your facility care for the majority of your observation patients, excluding those times when there's overflow or you're dealing with post-op observation? Choices are the ED physicians care for them in the ED or in an observation unit. The hospitals care for them in an observation unit, but the community docs are not allowed. The hospitals and community docs care for them in the OBS units. We have no OBS unit. The patients are scattered all over the hospital. We admit everybody is an inpatient, and or this is not applicable to you. And we'll be back in a bit with the results. Thanks, Ron. As Dr. Hurst said, we'll have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you'll hear from David Glazer, J. Paul Spencer, Emily Evans, and our special guest, Dr. Brett Hogard with the Brundage Group. This is Monday, July 30th. This is the second week of Ipspalooza, a summer school where you can learn inpatient prospective payment system, IPPS. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are you frustrated by compliance webcasts that are simply a rehash of everything you already know? Are you looking for fresh, timely compliance content that is relevant to your compliance team as it is to the HIM and Revenue Cycle teams? Look no further than the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast subscription. Now you and your team can get the latest compliance and regulatory information directly from Rack Monitor, the industry's most respected source of compliance and auditing news and education. Subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcast subscription now so everyone on your team and other departments will have the latest information to stay compliant while avoiding audits and takebacks. For more information and to subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcasts, click on the handout tab in today's program. We're back and a program note. The 2019 IPPS final rule is expected to be released soon. And Dr. Hirsch has an important webcast on August 16th about new changes to the inpatient admission order requirements. To attend, register at the Rack University Bookstore. Now let's check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer who returns to the broadcast with a report on some risky business. Good morning, David. What's risky with you this morning? Good morning, Nancy. Well, I'm going to talk about the proposed physician fee schedule, and it's difficult to understand the logic underlying the proposal to dramatically change the way physicians use evaluation and management codes. 
Friday's Federal Register contains CMS's proposal for the 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. Now, it's important to emphasize this is only a proposal. When the final rule is issued, which is likely between Halloween and Thanksgiving, to be effective January 1, 2019, it may adapt all, some, or none of the proposal. There are two distinct elements to the proposal, and while it's possible that standing alone they're logical, combined the two seem entirely irrational. The first proposal involves modifying the criteria for choosing an E&M code. CMS describes the changes as a simplification, although a better characterization would be an increase in flexibility. Under the proposal, physicians would be free to continue to choose E&M codes exactly as they do now, but if adopted, the proposed rule would create another option in which the physicians could use the level of medical decision-making as the sole factor for choosing a code. Now, generally speaking, it's difficult to criticize a proposal that offers more choice, although there's a variety of psychological research into the paradox of choice, noting that when too many options are available, the situation can become overwhelming and more stressful than the absence of choice. And undoubtedly, many physicians would say that uh, describes exactly the current E&M situation with a bit too much choice. Now, if the only proposed change involved creating that additional flexibility, I would describe it as an improvement. However, the proposal includes another major change. It takes the current structure of five separate payment rates for each, or b both for new and established patient office visits, and reduces them to two. So currently, each code from 99201 through 99205 for new patients and 99211 through 215 for established patients has its own payment rate. Under the proposal, there'd be one payment rate for a level one, like a 99201 or a 99211, and a second payment rate for all of the other four codes, 99202 to 205 or 212 to 215. So basically, in other words, a 99212 and a 99215 would get paid the same way. Now, I don't know whether that proposal would be wise of standing alone. I have my doubts. But combined with the first proposal, it's ludicrous. Why on earth would you set up a complicated system for choosing the proper level of service if that complicated choice has absolutely no reimbursement impact? It's akin to completely restructuring the tax brackets and then have everyone paying the same single flat rate. It makes no sense. Now, I know a variety of professionals at CMS, and their work usually impresses me. I have no idea what went wrong here, um, because if the goal is to have one payment rate for all new patient visits and another for all established patient visits, there's no reason to require physicians to work to place them into four different meaningless codes. CMS claims that the proposal lowers the record-keeping burden. In fact, it creates an unprecedented level of busy work. Perhaps CMS will choose only one of the two proposals. Perhaps it will not implement any of the proposed changes. After all, many a proposed rule is never implemented. However, the idea of creating a complicated scheme for choosing codes and then rendering it all irrelevant by having one payment level suggests to me that this proposal is living in, as Genesis would say, the land of confusion. Back to you, Nancy.
Thanks, David. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David's a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Now it's time for my segment on hot topics. Last week, my hot topic was on the targeted probe and educate program, specifically mentioning the number of Monitor Monday listeners that reported receipt of outpatient PT and OT. TPE welcome letters identifying in particular therapy evaluation codes. Since then, I've heard from several other Monitor Monday regulars as other therapy inquiries also stating they've received therapy-targeted probe and educate letters specific to the use of 97530 therapeutic activities when paired with another code subject to the CCI edits. The requests identify the use of 97530 with another code that was unbundled with the 59 modifier. In these instances, the TPE welcome letter states to be prepared to submit documents upon the receipt of the ADR, and among the document request is the therapist schedule for the specific date of service identified. For those in the know, therapy minutes count, whether it's three hours of therapy in an earth, 720 minutes per week for an ultra-high rug and a sniff, or direct one-on-one minutes in outpatient therapy constrained by the eight minutes rule. Minutes are often the gotcha in the therapy world of audits and investigations. My tip on this hot topic is to ensure that outpatient therapy documentation supports the use of both of the codes when I'm bundling per the CCI edits. If patients are scheduled in 45-minute time blocks and four units of direct one-on-one codes are billed, your therapy mm-hmm. note should indicate how that was computed as a minimum of 53 direct one-on-one minutes are required to bill for four units. As a way of example, a PTA provided part of the treatment session. Next, Monitor Monday National Correspondent right here in Milwaukee, J. Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul. What's the latest? Recent news has brought about uh, an interesting uh, trend that is beginning to develop. Uh, when uh, Medicare administrative contractors are changed in a particular geographic region. Most providers are of the belief that all of the payments that were put forward by those uh, contractors are now finalized and that the only things that are standing out or uh, uh, as questionable by those contractors are uh, claims that have fallen under uh, some type of audit uh, uh, procedure that was already ongoing at the time that contractor changed hands. Well, there were some rural providers in Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, and some other states that used to be under Cahaba uh, that uh, that uh, suddenly found a very rather, uh, a rather uh, uh, disheartening surprise when uh, the OIG and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services determined that there were $55 million in improper payments uh, to providers in those states. Now, what occurred at the time was that Cahaba paid those claims as if the patients had uh, traditional Medicare coverage, but in fact, the, the, uh, these 268,000 claims that were paid in error were for patients who also 
actually had a Medicare Advantage plan, and that Medicare Advantage plan also paid those uh, hospitals and rural health clinics uh, the money that they were not due. Uh, for most of the providers, these providers in Georgia were the hardest hit, having to pay back $19.1 million, uh, Tennessee 15.4 and 11.9 to out. To Alabama, and another 8.3 million from other states that Cahaba uh, managed during their time as a Medicare administrative contractor. Uh, the biggest problem that occurs now is determining when those payments should be paid back. Obviously, with rural health providers, you're talking about providers that don't have a wide margin financially to be able to simply cut a check for this amount of money. Originally, CMS told them that the money was due back in July of 2018, uh, i.e. now, uh, and the hospitals are now fighting that determination, and now CMS has given them a little bit of leeway to pay those services back. I would have to say that this is not the first time that I have heard of uh, now uh, completed uh, Medicare administrative contractors uh, or now uh, now outsourced uh, contractor claims being looked at retroactively. There are other types of audits happening across multiple specialties in MAC jurisdictions that were subject to change, including right here in the Midwest where WPS Medicare was the uh, contractor of record uh, in certain places, uh, but uh, was then changed to another contractor. Uh, it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, obviously, this is not something that's going to come with any type of warning. It's going to be more of a determination from the OIG based on an audit. But this is these are going to be for claims that are not currently under an audit or in the appeals process. These are claims that have already been paid under an old contractor and for which uh, CMS and the OIG have made a determination that the claims are overpaid. And with that, I'll throw it back to Nancy. Thanks, Paul. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul's a senior healthcare consultant for Doctors Management. Now, with the latest news about the recovery audit contractors, here is Monitor Monday legislative analyst Emily Evans. Good morning, Emily, and welcome back to the show. What's the latest with the RAC? The latest with the RACs is that uh, it appears that CMS, um, based on speeches and news releases coming out of Seema Verma's office, is is finally articulating a fraud, waste, and abuse strategy um, after you know 18 months, um, almost two years of of really being um, quite silent on on the topic, uh, in in sharp contrast to the o- Obama administration. Um, and that policy that is emerging is 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 very is very different in a number of um, in a number of respects. Uh, in the first respect, uh, the, where the Obama administration was focused very heavily on uh, fraud, waste, and abuse in the Medicare program, and used the RACs as a primary uh, cudgel, so to speak, uh, for implementing that strategy. Um, and the cynic amongst us um, uh, here on Rack Monitor thought that it was uh, intended to bend the cost curve, not to fight fraud, waste, and abuse. And turns out they may be right. We'll see. Um, but that focus on on Medicare and and through the recovery out contractors was is was a, a primary focus of the um, 
of the Obama administration. And Medicaid, uh, as uh, Paul Spencer has pointed out repeatedly, um, Medicaid program integrity was less of uh, less interesting to the, the federal government. Now there are some operational reasons for that, um, but 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 certainly um, you know as a policy priority, it it, it simply wasn't there. And looking back in retrospect, it seems that the policy priority was to is really enroll as many people in in Medicaid uh, as as we possibly uh, could. So what's changed? Um, the recovery audit contractors are still the law. Um, they are still a functioning and ongoing, um, uh, I'm sure, nuisance to some uh, value to the federal government. But nonetheless, um, still the law still has to happen. Now, Seema Verma. In her speech to the Commonwealth Club in, in California last week, articulated a not a traditional rack role, but she articulated a, a a vision for fighting fraud, waste, and abuse in the Medicare program um, that is a, a little bit different. Um, she, what she said was, you know, commercial payers review claims for services before and after the claim. Currently, Medicare program only reviews less than three tenths of one percent of the nearly 1.5 billion Medicare claims that CMS pays annually. We need to learn from our private sector colleagues so we can move efficient, move more efficient and do an even better job of safeguarding the fiscal integrity of our programs. That seems to be signaling more of the, similar to the Home Health Pre-Authorization Review, um, a, a more um, uh, a more pre-auth type um, or pre Payment um, scheme than the RAC uh, program has 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 participated in. Does that mean perhaps that the RACs will engage in more uh, prepayment review, which was put on hiatus in the Obama administration? That's a good question, but that seems to be one one thing um, that she is uh, suggesting there. Um, the other uh, important uh, contrast here is the way in which. CMS is now much more focused on the Medicaid program. Uh, it, few weeks, few about last month, CMS released um, some goals for program integrity in Medicaid. They're focused primarily on uh, eligibility, uh, whether or not people in the expansion populations are in expansion states are eligible um, under their income uh, thresholds, uh, and also whether people who are in the expansion population should be more rightly placed in traditional uh, uh, populations, such as uh, pregnant women is one that was cited by, by the, the OIG. Uh, CMS also indicated that they are prepared to optimize claims and provider data uh, in order to uh, better, uh, better manage the program. And then finally, it appears that CMS is going to increasingly look towards its uh, Medicare um, uh, Medicare Advantage and Medicaid Managed Care Organizations to provide the level of program integrity that really the, the RAC program and other federal uh, fee-for-service programs just haven't been, been able to do. And that calls for, of course, greater uh, enrollment in Medicare Advantage. Um, so it's a, definitely a, a shifting, but I think we're going to hear more about this uh, in, the, in the coming months. It's obviously a priority. It made its way into her, um, into Seema Verma's speech. 
but it's definitely shifted away from um, from what the Obama administration was pursuing towards something uh, quite different. And with that, I'll uh, turn it back to you, Nancy. Thanks, Emily. That was Monitor Monday legislative analyst Emily Evans with an update on the RACs. Emily is the managing director of Hedgeye Risk Management in Washington, D.C. Our lead story this morning is about a new and disturbing payer denial, a situation that has caught the attention of the Brundage Group. An insurance company removed the diagnosis of COPD exacerbation because the treating physician chose not to treat using steroids. Could this denial be happening at your facility? Here now to report our lead story is the Chief Medical Officer for the Brundage Group, Dr. Brett Hogard. Thank you, Nancy. It's a pleasure to be here today. Now, one of the things we do at Brundage Group is denial of management. And today I wanted to talk about a new twist on the medical necessity denial that we've recently encountered on the inpatient side. Traditionally, denials have focused on lack of provider documentation or failure to meet clinical validation. The clinical validation usually centers around if diagnostic criteria are met or whether the condition was clinically significant. For example, the diagnosis of sepsis may be denied if the patient does not have SIRS criteria or an appropriate SOFA score. Or we might run into the diagnosis of hyponatremia may be denied because there was no apparent evaluation or treatment of the condition when you look through the chart. This new denial tactic centers around the treatment actually ordered for the patient. Uh, the case I'm going to discuss today involved a 70-year-old male who was admitted to the hospital with an acute COPD exacerbation. This patient had clear documentation of COPD uh, throughout the chart and the clinical criteria supporting the diagnosis, including a history of COPD, wheezing on exam, hypoxia, and treatment with nebulized bronchodilators. The diagnosis uh, of acute COPD was present in all the clinical notes and was clearly the main focus of treatment for the physician. However, the diagnosis was denied because the treating physician did not prescribe the patient steroids. The insurance company noted that they require the following clinical criteria to establish a diagnosis of COPD exacerbation. They required worsening of respiratory symptoms relative to baseline over hours to days, treatment with systemic corticosteroids, bronchodilators, and an established diagnosis or high clinical suspicion of an underlying COPD. This patient had three of the four criteria cited by the insurance company. The only criteria lacking was treatment with systemic steroids. I would like to point out that these criteria are developed by the insurance company and are not the diagnostic criteria we find in clinical guidelines or medical textbooks. They're similar, but they're much more restrictive. I would also point out that clinical validation is not part of the criteria that coders use when assigning the code. According to the official coding guidelines, a diagnosis qualifies to be coded if it meets one of the following five criteria. If there's clinical evaluation, therapeutic treatment, if diagnostic procedures are performed, if it extended the length of hospitalization or required increased nursing care or monitoring. When you look at this denial, it's ridiculous. And in my opinion, the insurance company oversteps their review rights. You have a physician who's diagnosing and treating acute COPD. The physician did not give steroids, but there may be multiple reasons the physician decided not to treat with steroids. For example, they may have been concerned about a possible infection or blood glucose control. On the other side, you have a physician who's never evaluated, examined, or treated the patient, denying payment based on arbitrary criteria developed by the insurance company. This denial is particularly concerning for me because it opens the door to a new tactic for denials. 
Will they now deny an acute GI bleed because the physician didn't order a transfusion? Or will they deny the diagnosis of myocardial infarction because heparin wasn't given? As I think we've all seen, the insurance companies are becoming more aggressive with denials. They're often accomplishing this by using the insurance company's own criteria for the denied diagnoses. When faced with one of these denials, I would recommend looking closely at the insurance company's criteria and comparing it to the current medical literature and clinical guidelines. We'll continue to keep an eye out for this particular tactic and keep you informed if it continues. And with that, I'll pass it back to Nancy. Thanks, Dr. Hogard. That was the Chief Medical Officer for the Brundage Group, Dr. Brett Hogard. Now's the time for the results of our Monitor Monday listener survey, and it's so much fun to be tossing this again to Dr. Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch? Well, it looks like 34% of hospitals still have no observation unit with patients scattered all over the place. The next option, or at highest, 26% of hospitals have an OBS unit, but they let anybody take care of the patients, and only 11% limit it to hospitalists and 3% with ED doctors. So it looks like there's a long way to go for that. And by the way, I have an article coming out Thursday that'll talk about how observation medicine may change based on the physician fee schedule rule. So take a look at that. Okay, Dr. Hirsch, I'm going to ask you one really quick question. Did the results surprise you? They did. I really thought there'd be more OBS units with closed units with just hospitalists. That seems to be the most efficient way to do it, and I'm surprised that we're not seeing more of it. All righty. Thanks, Dr. Hirsch, for taking the poll this week. That's going to be a wrap for us. Thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to all of our outstanding panelists, Dr. Brett Holgard, David Glazer, Dr. Rob Hirsch, Emily Evans, and J. Paul Spencer. I'm Nancy Beckley, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. We look forward to seeing you right back here next Monday morning when Chuck Buck returns. And as Chuck always says, have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.